Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles for the last time for a while to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. It's been nearly three years since we've gone through this Gospel. Again, I'm sad to say goodbye to Mark for a little while, uh, but God has richly blessed us, I think, through this book. Uh, we're going to look at verses 9 through 20 this morning. Now, I know there it's debated, but it's a modern debate, and that's important to understand. I do believe it is Scripture, with the caveat knowing that text criticism is a difficult subject but hopefully you see why I believe it is in Scripture as we go through. I know I differ again with modern scholars. That's important, and I'll hopefully address that a little bit as we go through. But I do believe it is there. I believe it is Scripture. So Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, I'll begin reading at verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we are thankful for your resurrection, and we are thankful for your continued witness in this world through your church. Thank you, O God, for your continued working in this world uh, as Christ continues to do and to teach, even as you sanctify your people, even as you save sinners, O God. We're thankful that you do so uh, with your word. Thank you for the disciples. Thank you that we still stand on their authority, even as it is found in your word, even though they are with you. Thank you, O God, that they still speak and that you still speak through them and you still speak through you, those whom you've called and appointed to be ambassadors, that we might hear Christ. We might hear him speak to us this day. And so we ask, O God, that you would take your word and may it be a light to us. May it guide us. May it give us all that we need. May it strengthen and encourage and lift us up, O oh God, as we consider all that you've done. And so we pray, O oh God, you'd be with us now as we come to your word. Give us illumination from on high. Give us understanding of your word. Thank you that you formed us, O oh God. And just as you formed us in our mother's womb, we pray, O oh God, that you would form your thoughts in our minds and hearts. Form us and make us more like Christ, we pray. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, we pray that you'd save them. And we pray, O oh God, for your saints. We pray that you would strengthen them. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, during last week's sermon, I asked the question, is the church or the academy the pillar and ground of truth? Who, to whom has God entrusted his blessed word? Now, I'm not against the academy. I'm not against seminary, being one who attended seminary. But sometimes a lot of bad things can emerge from the academy and can then trickle down into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the church itself must be that pillar and ground. 
and God has preserved it throughout the ages in its lowercase t tradition. I'm not against history. I'm not against reading what other people have said throughout history to make sure I'm not losing my own mind. And so we must consider the witness of men who have gone before us. And many of our forefathers, John Owen, John Gill, many of the ones to whom we love, have no question that verses 9 through 20 is in the scriptures. It's not even a debate. It's not even a discussion. It simply is there. So you can read their commentaries, and there it is. They comment on verse 9 all the way to verse 20 concerning what is going on here. And perhaps, again, it's a modern debate because of mainly two large manuscripts, two massive manuscripts, but 5,000 bear witness to verses 9 through 20. There's plenty of evidence, plenty of witness, and there's plenty of witness with respect to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I do believe verses 9 through 20 is part of the word of God. Some commentators believe it's verse 8 that's the end. And some believe it's not verse 8 or verses 9 through 20. So they want to have their cake and eat it too. Which one is it then? Just decide. Which one should it be? And so I've decided, or I guess God has decided, verses 9 through 20. And I think there are other reasons thematically why I think it should be here. And I may bring some of those things up as we go through. But in reality, it's ending on the witness of the risen Christ. It's ending on who he is as the risen Lord. It's ending on the fact that he is the one who has ascended and continues to bear witness. And remember, witness is one of the key themes of Mark's book. Remember the key question, the one I asked at the beginning of the book, the one I ask almost every time. I hope it's all in your head. Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Who is this one? And it culminates in, the, in, in 829 where he says, or Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus bears witness in 1462, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven, and he bears witness again in chapter 16. So witness to who he is is important. True discipleship is important as well, and all those themes come up for us in verses 9 through 20. And one problem that I think we see in verses 9 through 20 is the problem of doubting disciples. The problem of wavering people, the problem of having weak faith. The disciples have it, so we shouldn't be surprised when we have it. And that's been a perpetual problem. The disciples need to have the parables explained to them. The disciples struggled with kingdom lessons. The disciples are nowhere to be seen. So should we be surprised when he is risen and they don't believe the witness to, who, uh, to do that very thing? That's why we need faithful preaching and patience in faithful preaching. We need faithful witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that's what we see in these verses. Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. And remember, Mark is recording Peter's account. Mark concludes with the witness of Christ who commissions his witnesses to the world. So it's all about the witness of Christ. And we'll look at this under three headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the witness of the risen Lord, verses 9 through 14. Secondly, we'll see the mission of the risen Lord, verses 15 through 18. Then lastly, we'll see the work of the risen Lord, verses 19 and 20. So the witness of the risen Lord, the mission of the risen Lord, and the work of the risen Lord. Let's first look at the witness of the risen Lord in verses 9 through 14. Again, remember the context. Christ has been crucified. Christ has been buried. 
He has been risen, but we have this young man appeared, appeared to these ladies, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome. They were fearful. They were afraid and they decided to run away. Verse eight. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, some people argue for the ending at verse eight because Mark is abrupt and that is very true. However, it is a little odd that an entire book would end on a preposition, the word for. Now, it's, there are examples of it in Greek literature, but it's still so odd that all the modern commentators I read said they don't think it ends at verse 8. But they don't think it's 9 through 20, but they don't think it ends at verse 8 either. So I do think it continues on. I do think it moves on. And even though Mark has been kind of abrupt and mysterious in a lot of ways, you remember how he started? With a bang. He said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Behold, I send my messenger before you to prepare your way. Malachi 3, Isaiah chapter 40. Boom, here comes Mark or John the Baptist on the scene. So Mark starts off with an announcement about who Jesus is. He is Yahweh. He starts off the announcement that this one is the one promised of old. So we should be surprised if it ends with a bit of a bang as well in verses 9 through 20. And so we see the witnesses, the first witness, verse 9 and 10. Notice, the first day of the week, when he rose early on the first day, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Now, some people, again, like to say here, well, it's odd that they would mention her because she was just mentioned. Let me ask you a question. How many times was she mentioned in the past, what, 10 verses? Three times. They don't, they don't say, we don't assume in verse 47 that it should not be there, Mary Magdalene, because of what we saw in verse 40. The ones who were looking was Mary Magdalene. The ones who saw the burial was Mary Magdalene. The one who came to, to anoint him is Mary Magdalene. And the one to whom he appeared first in verse 9 is Mary Magdalene setting her apart from the other ones. To whom did Christ appear first? And he appeared to her first, which coincides with John's gospel. And notice, out of whom he had cast seven demons. This is especially mentioned in Luke chapter eight, but shows the grace of God to this one. One perhaps would have dabbled in magic and a lot of magic. One who perhaps would have engaged in great wickedness and sorcery. And here is the one to whom Christ cast out seven seven demons. God's grace, God's mercy, and God's kindness to Mary Magdalene. So he appears to her. Our Lord Jesus appears to her. In verse 10, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. She goes and tells the disciples. She goes and speaks to them. They're in despair still. They're, they're, They're saddened. I mean, not just the fact that their Lord had died. I don't know about you, but when you do something bad and you feel terrible about it, you mourn and you weep over that very thing. They had left him in his hour of need. They were nowhere to be found. They were nowhere near where they ought to have been. And so they mourn and they weep and their perhaps head space is not in the right place. And they don't believe her. And when verse 11, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. And it really is not surprising considering how thick the disciples have been. Jesus said three times them, and he will be risen, and he will be risen, and he will be risen. And yet they did not hear. And it's even the other gospels account after he was raised from the dead. Oh, then it all started to click with them. I mean, Luke 24, 
as Jesus expounds all the law and the prophets concerning Jesus Christ and who he is, I mean, as he does that, there's this burning in our heart. Wow, their minds are open to what the scriptures say concerning him. And the disciples for a long time just weren't understanding, weren't getting it, weren't realizing it. So it shouldn't be a surprise when we see that they did not believe. So one witness, they don't believe. Now there's two more, verses 12 and 13. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And this is parallels, does parallel with the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. Perhaps one of the disciples there was Cleopas, according to 2418 of Luke. The other one, we don't necessarily know who that is. Could be Peter, could be Nathaniel. There's a lot of speculation. But in any case, he appears to do of these ones. He appears and reveals himself to two of these ones. Now, what's interesting is that same word is also used in Mark 4.22. And in Mark 4, we see Jesus speak to them in parables and explain to his disciples what the parables mean. And remember a long, long time ago that Mark chapter 4 was in the in sandwich in between his Galilean ministry. Here's all these miracles. Here are all these things that are happening. Here's what's going on. Jesus then explains to his disciples privately, like he does in Mark 13, with the, all of that discourse. He explains to them privately what's happening. And so we have this parable about the light under a basket. Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. And at that time, Jesus was keeping things under wraps because he wanted the proper witness to proclaim who he is. But he did say the kingdom is unexpected in a lot of ways. And one day, everything will be revealed. Well, something has been revealed here in Mark 16, 12. The risen Christ to these two who appear before him. Now, another form there. That same language is used in Philippians 2 to refer Christ who was in the form of God. That is, he's fully God and also in the form of a bondservant. That is, he is fully man. And so it's not though he is changing forms. He is still his human nature. He is still his human resurrected form that we see here. Perhaps Gil says, perhaps as he appeared to Mary, he looked like a gardener. I don't know. Perhaps he appeared to these ones as a scribe. I don't know but he's still his human Christ as they walked and went into the country. And so these ones go and tell the rest, verse 13, but they did not believe them either. The disciples do not believe again. Three witnesses, they're still struggling. Then finally, he appears to them, verse 14. There's this progression of witness. Again, that's one of the key themes of the book. Who would be his witnesses? And he wants to make sure that his witnesses are the ones who get it right and advance his kingdom. Which is why we see the language in Acts chapter 1 when he says to the disciples, you will be my witnesses. He didn't want the demon-possessed one who was healed to be the witness. He He didn't want the leper who was healed to be the witness. He wanted his chosen fishers of men to be fishers of men. He wanted his chosen disciples to be those ones who would be his witnesses. To get it right, that they might say and proclaim who he is, that people might confess that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And so he finally appears to them as they sat at the table and he rebukes their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. They were the closest to him. They had the parables explained to them. They had the Olivet Discourse given unto them. How often he said for three years, I must suffer, but also be raised. And so, yeah, a little bit of rebuke is needed here for them. They had unbelief. They had hardness of heart. They, had, uh, they, 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 they did not believe after he had been risen. Now, it's not, an, uh, it's not uh, as though they were not saved. They were just struggling because that language is also used in Mark 9.14. We see, A, the disciples who have no faith. Jesus speaks in exasperation. It's not as though they don't have faith, but, oh, faithless ones. And then he goes on to, after the disciples cannot heal a boy. But then the father, the father says in verse 24, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He had a weak faith, not a temporary faith. And so the disciples here are struggling. It's not as though they've lost grace. It's not as though they're out of the kingdom of heaven. It's not as though they're not under the guidance of God. They struggled had unbelief, did not, uh, had hardness of heart, yet they're still in with the Lord. And he's going to still make them the witnesses in verse 15. But many witnesses now, the Mary Magdalene, the two disciples, and now these other 11, whether one was included in the first two or not, the point is there are tons of witnesses that Jesus has been raised from the dead. I think one very kind and gracious application we can see here is when witnesses doubt. And if witnesses doubt, those are, who are being witnessed to may doubt as well. Those to who have the gospel preached to them may take some time. Those who have been saved might take a while to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are truly saved might still have weak faith. They might lack assurance. They might lack their the clinging to Christ. They might be down in the dumps many times. And notice God is very gracious to those who have weak faith. He's gracious to Mary. He is gracious to the 11 here by rebu rebuking them. He doesn't remove them as witnesses, but perhaps he gives them sympathy as they preach the gospel, as they go out into the world, as it, they preach to ones who might take some time before they come. I think we all think it'd be great if we preach the gospel and everybody, the spirit would fall and everybody would just be saved just like that, right? We would all like that. I would like that. Boom, just like that. I just like to say the word, it happens. That's not how, how it usually goes. Some people are converted that way. I'm not denying that. That's a sunburst, as one of my professors said. Many are converted, though, by sunrise. That is, it takes some time. We don't always know the day that we are converted. Perhaps we doubt. We question, we rebel, we you know, fight back, we talk back. Perhaps those things are involved here. And so it helps the disciples as they advance to the ends of the earth that, that not everybody is going to believe just like that. But I also think it helps the original audience. They're the church in Rome. I mean, they have threats. They have threats of emperors that want to perhaps take them out. They have threats of what could happen to them. They have their doubts. 
And so there is this encouragement that God is gracious to us. J.C. Ryle, again, one of the old dead friends, commenting on this section, says, Let us learn from the unbelief of the apostles a useful, practical lesson for ourselves. Let us cease to feel surprised when we feel doubts arising in our own heart. Let us cease to expect perfection of faith in other believers. We are yet in the body. We are men of like passions with the apostles. We must count it no strange thing if our experience is sometimes like theirs. And if our faith, like theirs, sometimes gives way. Let us resist unbelief manfully. But let us watch and pray and strive to be delivered from its power. But let us not conclude that we have no grace because we are sometimes harassed with doubts, nor suppose that we have no part or lot with the apostles, because at seasons we feel unbelieving. Brethren, the best of men are men at best. You are not the Lord Jesus Christ. I am not the Lord Jesus Christ, but we cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in times of doubt, even in times of despair, even in times of discouragement. And I love what J. Gresham Majin says. He says, weak faith may not move mountains, but it makes an enemy a friend of God Almighty. So saving faith is resting, accepting, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Believing in him and looking to him for life everlasting has nothing to do with you and I, but everything to do with what he has done for us. Brethren, if you doubt, look to Christ. He is gracious and good, and he is risen. So that's the witness of the risen Lord. Let's then look secondly at the mission of the risen Lord, verse 8, 15 through 18. Two things, preaching and signs that accompany preaching, which is further expounded in verses 19 and 20. But we see what they must do. What is the mission of Christ? What is the mission of the Holy Spirit and how that comes about? And certainly we see the mission of the disciples given to them there, but it's also the mission of the church. And certainly this parallel is in Matthew 28, verse 18. And so notice, go into all the world, verse 15, and preach the gospel to every creature. Go and preach the gospel. That is the mission of the church. Does that not then coincide as well with the mission of Christ? Remember what he said all the way again, all the way back in Mark chapter one. He said, for this purpose, I have come to preach, to preach the kingdom of God, to proclaim salvation, to proclaim who he is and what he has done. Now his miracles affirm that. And we'll talk about miracles in just a second, but he says it is to proclaim. And the church continues to proclaim Christ as Christ proclaims himself through his ambassadors, as Christ continues to work. But it does so through the mission of the church. He does so through means. And preaching is the means by which sinners hear and by which sinners are saved. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And actually the language there is whom they have not heard. So Christ, Christ speaks through his ambassadors. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Do you see what God does? Preaching. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, 
who bring glad tidings of good things. And this message of the risen Lord is something that must be proclaimed. It must be spoken. It must be uh, uh, given forth by words. Verse 16 of Romans 10. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The word is a, called a double-edged sword for a reason. It's called the living word for a reason. It goes forth and does not return void. That's what the church is called to do. It is what saves. It is what nourishes God's people, namely having a hopefully every a weekly diet of God's word proclaimed and hopefully a daily diet as you read his word. It's how we grow. It's how we have grace multiplied, as Peter says. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. How is it that you grow? By being in the word and most importantly, by being under the preaching of God's word. So go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then verse 16, notice. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So notice it's believing, it's having faith, again, in who Jesus is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. Faith is believing what is true concerning him. Confession, when I ask the question, who do you say? Hopefully you say he is the Christ, the son of God. But then we come to that phrase, and is baptized, will be saved. This is perhaps why some don't like verses 9 through 20. And it does sound like there's an ex pair operato. Mike, please don't do Latin on a worn day, but that's okay. It just means by the working, it has worked. Roman Catholics believe this. Great baptism, grace is like medicine. All you have to do is take a little bit to ding, you're, you're, you're healed. That's what it is. By the working, it has worked. It's not baptism by faith. It's you're baptized, you're saved. That's how it works. It's almost like stuff. It's medicine. Here, you just take that. That's all it needs to be. And so this does sound a little squeamish to us, doesn't it? <laughs> Believe and is baptized will be saved. But there's other squeamish places that make us kind of go, ah, what's going on here? It sounds like they're saying baptism saves. There's a few other places that might sound like this. Titus chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, oh, Paul, I thought you believed in justification by faith and salvation by faith. I mean, he says in verse 5 of Titus 3, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So baptism cannot be a work. Any of my righteousness cannot be a work, but he saves us. But according uh, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It kind of sounds like baptismal regeneration, doesn't it? As you read it at first glance. But again, context, clear passages help us interpret the unclear. It's notice it's washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit going hand in hand. That is, baptism is an outward sign of an inward work. That is, circumcision without hands, Colossians chapter 2 is what God does by the Holy Spirit. And baptism is a sign of that very thing. It's a means of grace. 
There's also other squeamish language in Acts chapter 22, 16. So it's not that weird to see squeamish language. But in 22, 16, as he's Paul, again, is preaching to the Jerusalem mob. He says, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That kind of sounds like, again, you're baptized and your sins are washed away, right? So it shouldn't be surprised when we see that type of language. Now, does baptism itself save? No. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But is baptism important? Yes. And language like Mark 16 and Titus 3 and Acts chapter 22 teach us that very thing. It is also, baptism is also a means of grace. It is a sign of dying and rising again. It's a sign of being washed and cleansed in Christ. It is a sign of those very things. So it is an important thing. And it is a command of the Lord in Matthew chapter 28, that outward sign of an inward work. Gill says, baptism, though it is said to save by the resurrection of Christ, as it is a means of leading faith to Christ's resurrection, yet it has no causal influence upon salvation. It is not essential to it. The thief on the cross went to heaven without it, and Simon Magus went to hell with it. But it is the duty of everyone that believes, and he that truly believes ought to be baptized and prove the truth of his faith by his obedience to Christ, and such shall be saved. The point is, baptism is very, very important. And some people put it off far too long. And I can say unequivocally that if you put it off far too long, you perhaps are in sin. Has Christ not commanded it in Matthew 28? Go and roll his disciples, baptize. So baptism is important. Baptism is a blessing. Baptism is a wonderful means of grace. And so that's why it is put kind of like what we see in Mark 16, Acts 22, and Titus chapter 3. So whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But verse 16 continues, but he who does not believe will be condemned. They shall be judged before God most high. Edwards says it's of universal significance but also of eternal consequence. All the world and those who do not believe and obey that gospel, which is what we read in Romans 10, they shall be condemned. And if you're here today and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, my very words, the very words of Christ, condemn you today. Here's the gospel of free and sovereign grace. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But if you do not obey it, you shall be judged and you shall be condemned in your sin. You shall die in your trespasses and sins, but there is mercy and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. So universal significance, eternal consequence. And what's interesting, Edwards was one of those ones who wanted to have his cake and eat it too. He didn't think it ended at verse eight, but didn't think it was nine through 20, but he still commented on verses nine through 20. I mean, shocker. I mean, maybe... You know, Occam's razor, the simplest answer is probably the right answer. Nine through 20 is in God's word. And there's other reasons for it as well. But in any case, universal significance, eternal consequence. Then we see signs in verses 17 and 18. I admit this is tough, but 
there's a lot of examples of this in the advancement of God's kingdom in Acts. Verse 17. And these signs will follow those who believe. That's just a general indefinite meaning. It doesn't mean everybody is going to have all of these gifts. First Corinthians helps us with that very thing. But also what we see here and what we see in verse 20 shows forth what miracles were meant to be. And they were not meant to be a, a, a means in and of themselves, but they were meant to affirm the preached word. And even at the end of the book of Acts, miracles begin to fade. We all like to think miracles happened all the time in the book of Acts. They do not. Read it again. Read it again in, in order. You'll see Acts 2, certainly the outpouring of Pentecost. Acts chapter 8, the outpouring, I think, uh, in Judea. Acts chapter 10 to the Gentiles and then to the ends of the earth. But they certainly do miracles, but it's not always all the time. Even the Old Testament, God does not speak actually that much. How often do you read many sentences that say it's been many, many years since God has spoken? I mean, from Malachi to when John the Baptist came on the scene, it was four, I mean, 400 years or something like that. I mean, we like to think that miracles happened all the time. And thankfully, the miracle of salvation happens all the time. But the signs and wonders, the extraordinary things, all the razzle-dazzle and pizzazz didn't happen as much as we might think that they did. But they do, again, affirm Christ has been risen. They affirm the Messianic age is dawned. And so all these things are legit. And these signs will follow. In my name, they will cast out demons. Jesus does this throughout Mark's gospel. Jesus, uh, the disciples do this in Acts, especially Acts chapter 8. So we see that there. He has power over the spiritual realm. Notice, in my, uh, they will speak with new tongues. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. You know what this teaches us about tongues? Tongues languages not some special language that you and i have in first corinthians 14 he's speaking hyperbolically that is he's speaking figuratively though i speak in the tongues of angels though i but i do not have love he's speaking hyperbolically there it's not as though there's actually tongues of angels and the whole point of first corinthians 14 is to highlight tongues is actually a sign of judgment you want to know why because in Deuteronomy 28, it's a sign of judgment. If they went out and were vomited out of the land into a place they do not understand the language, is it not judgment? And if you can't understand what somebody is saying, what benefit is it? That's why it's a, it is important for translation work. It's important to have missionaries to know the language of where they're going to. So certainly signs had a specific place and a specific purpose. And again, they did not happen that much, but usually key events in redemptive history. Acts 2, Jerusalem. Acts, I think it is in Acts 8, in Judea and Samaria. Acts 10, the Gentiles. And Acts 19, the ends of the earth. Following Acts 1.8. It was to see that, the, that, that God had extended to the ends of the earth. It was the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Does that mean? You and I have the gift of tongues. No, it does not. That's my view. I know there's a lot of good, even conservative people who disagree with me on that one. But I am a cessationist with respect to this. Because even what one would say is tongues today, I don't think resembles what we see in the book of Acts or even in Mark 16. 
So tongues, so tongues is good. There is a place for it. I know I kind of hit and ragged on what we think of it today, but there is a place for it there. They will speak with new tongues, sign of the Messianic age. Then verse 18, they will take up serpents. I hate snakes, but they will take up serpents. What does that mean? So perhaps, again, we see this in Acts 28 with Paul. He's bitten. They think he's going to die, and he doesn't die. So that does happen in Acts 28. Maybe there's some figured, something figurative going on here because the word for snake in Greek is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 3. I don't know, destroying the devil maybe, possibly, but there is that literal aspect of taking up snakes in Acts 28. And I think this, this one here is the hardest. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. Now, many of the commentators highlight in history, there's examples of this very thing. But in any case, they did, did occur in history. We don't have a biblical record necessarily of that very thing. That's okay, because it says it here in verse 18. And what's interesting too, people might argue and say there's a lot of one-time word uses in Mark 16. That is, they're only found one time. Do you realize that Mark versus chapters 1 through 16, 8 has plenty of one-time uses as well? I mean, is that really an argument for that? I mean, Mark uses many words one time. So that's possible as well. But in any case, I admit that is the harder one. But I, again, it's in verse 18. And then they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So Jesus does this in Mark 6. There's also evidence again of this in the book of Acts as well. So Christ has given his witness, the ones who didn't believe the initial witness, but they are still his witnesses. And I think that highlights how the church is God's continuing witness in the world. Now, the church may not engage in miracles because the gifts of revelation, tongues, prophecy, healings, not saying people can't be healed, but God works through means. Thank the Lord for doctors, right? And praise God for those modern means we can use. I've already hit tongues pretty hard. Prophecy, boy, prophecy. If you got another 15 minutes, I won't brag on it too hard. But what we see in mo- with modern prophecy today does not square with what we see in the scriptures. Most of the time it's vague. Most of the time they think it's someone they don't know. I don't know you. And it's always positive. Why is it always like a good thing? I mean, you read the Old Testament. I mean, they usually know the people. It's usually not very nice. And it's usually pretty, you know, judgmental, we could say. So is it really prophecy today? Read the Old Testament and you'll see that I do not think it is not. Now, thankfully, God has still given us his word, which he speaks. That's why sometimes there's language in the Puritans of prophesying. They're just referring to preaching of God's word. That's what preaching is or prophesying is bringing forth God's word, telling forth what God has said. And we have his word. We no longer need those extraordinary gifts because we have all we need in the scriptures. And so the church itself is God's continuing witness in the world. And the church must do what she's been called to do. And that is preach God's word. Not puppets, not ponies, not programs. Not a spiritual super mall. I heard that one recently. I think that's great. A place where you can go and pick what you want and pick which store you want to go into and decide what you wish to have. That's what a church is. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. The church is the, is the, is the household of the living God. It is meant to be the place where God's word is proclaimed. And it's what we need. 
We sometimes think we need all the puppets, ponies, and programs, the razzle-dazzle, shredding guitars, and art, and plays, and all that sort of stuff. Now, this is what we need. We need God's word, and to hear it faithfully each and every week. And thankfully, even when the government thinks they can take out the church, other religions try to remove her, she will always have witness in this world. And remember, who is the witness? One of the key lessons to the book and the key witness to the ends of the earth are Christ's disciples and Christ's church, which coincides with Psalm 22, which we've seen a lot of. Christ triumph to the ends of the earth. They all shall hear. So that's the mission of the risen Lord. Let's then look thirdly and finally at the work of the risen Lord. Don't worry, we are almost done. I know you're all hungry, and I know it's also very, very warm. So verse 19, work of the risen Lord. We see the ascension in verse 19 and his session in verse 19. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. This is so important for his exaltation, isn't it? We've seen the Son of Man referenced many times throughout Mark's gospel. We've seen who he is throughout Mark's gospel. We've seen his transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. We've seen how he's going to come with the clouds of heaven, Mark chapter 13. We saw in 1462 how he said, the Pharisees will see him ascend. And I do think Christ's ascension is the earthly picture, of, obviously, of his ascension. I think Daniel 7 is the heavenly picture of his ascension as the one who comes to the ancient of days and comes with the clouds of heaven. And there's been a lot of Daniel. There's been a lot of son of man. There's been a lot of references in Mark chapter 16. So isn't it not fit or isn't it fitting that he would end with that reference that he's ascended to the right hand? He's received up into heaven and he sits down at the right hand of God leading captivity captive, Psalm 68, fulfilling Psalm 110 as the one who said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The language of taken up there is used in Acts 1 and 1 Timothy 3.16, received up in glory, talking about the gospel, how God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached on in the world, or preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received in glory. So that refers to all that Christ has done for us. So he ascended, he acceded, he is that pledge for us from heaven. And thankfully, his ascension also includes the outpouring of the Spirit. As we see the mission of the Son fulfilled in his cross work and dying and rising again, we see the mission of the Son and the Spirit, it's that blessed one will, inseparable operation, and threefold execution. And we see the spirit poured out and engaging in his mission. That is, we see visibly at Pentecost, the spirit there. We know that the spirit works invisibly through the working of God's word. So the spirit works, Christ still rules, Christ still reigns, even if we don't see it. So we don't need all the razzle-dazzles because Christ is at the right hand and Christ still reigns and Christ's spirit is still working. And so even though we don't have all those gifts of revelation, we are a church of the Holy Spirit, recognizing his mission and what he does. Because thankfully, it is how Christ works. Verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word, the accompanying signs 
Christ speaks. We have the means and the mediator. They preach, God's, God's saints preach, Christ works. This is affirmed in Acts chapter 1. This is affirmed in Romans chapter 10. This is affirmed in Acts chapter 26 as well. Christ speaks and proclaims through his people. As it says, they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them. And as the gospel advances, especially in the apostolic age, he confirms the word through the accompanying signs. Again, they were never meant to be an end, in, an end of themselves. That's why when people are like, let's do a little bit of word and let's do miracles. Not right. Not as though I actually believe miracles continue on, but that is not accurate or correct. Ryle says, finally, Nevis, ne the miracle we see is the church and conversion. Ryle says, finally, let us never forget that Christ's believing church in the world is of itself a standing miracle. The conversion and perseverance and grace of every member of the church is a sign and wonder, as great as the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The renewal of every saint is as great a marvel as the casting of, uh, out of a devil or the healing of a sick man or the speaking with a new tongue. Let's thank God for this and take courage. The age of spiritual miracles is not yet past. Happy are they who have learned this by experiencing and say, I was dead, but I'm alive again. I was blind, but now I see. Brethren, Christ still reigns and Christ still bears witness. And brethren, Christ still speaks. And so as we walk this world with many things that make us freak out, with many things that cause us much trepidation, what's there to worry about, right? Christ is on his throne. Christ is advancing his kingdom. Sinners shall be saved, and his dominion shall be from everlasting to everlasting. Ryle says, though the age of physical miracles is past, we take comfort in the thought that the church of Christ shall never want of Christ's special aid in its season of special need. The great head in heaven will never forsake his believing members. His eye is continually upon them. He will always time his help wisely and come to the support in the day that he is needed. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Christ reigns and Christ speaks, dear brethren. And Christ speaks in his church. And when he summons, will you not come? When he calls, will you not come and worship and hear him? Will you not come and have and find all you need in him? And if you're an unbeliever here today, will you not come and believe on this one who lived, died, and rose again? There are many witnesses to all that he has done. Will you believe and find everlasting hope? And this one who is the Christ. But this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we are thankful for your current reign. Thank you for your session. Thank you that you are seated at the right hand and you have power in this age and the age to come. And thank you that you still advance your kingdom through the means that you have appointed. We praise you and honor you, O oh God, for what you do, even in these ordinary ways. And may we love your means. May we appreciate your means, O oh God, especially as your witness continues throughout the ends of the earth. And please forgive us for our doubts. 
Forgive us for our doubts concerning the means. Forgive us for our doubts concerning your promises. Forgive us for our weakness, O God. And remind us, even in your word, even as we hear it preached, of who you are and what you've done. May we love the scriptures and cling to them. May we see your miracles even today in the sense that you will save sinners and renew your saints in the sense that you will sanctify your people. Thank you, O God, that we see this each and every day, that we see this each and every week, O God, that you're the one who is pleased to work amongst your church. So we ask, O God, you'd be with us now. Thank you for all that you've taught us in this word. And may we always be pleased to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And we're thankful that our Christ lives now at your right hand. So be with us now. Give us encouragement, we pray. May you be honored and glorified in all things. Thank you for all that you've done and for how you speak to us and are with us even now. Be with us in our time of fellowship, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.